This evening we're going to look at some of the verses that we read in our second scripture reading in the first epistle of Peter. And uh, Peter here is writing mainly to uh, dispersed Jewish converts. And he reminds them often about their new birth, their conversion. A number of times it's mentioned in this passage. And he reminds them uh, of where they've come from and the change that has been wrought in their lives through conversion. And Peter, under inspiration, felt it necessary to reinforce what had happened to these believers, that they had understood uh, what had taken place in their lives. But here was a radical change in life, in outlook, that spiritual life had been imparted. As I said, he's writing mainly to uh, Jewish converts, and so they would have been had an, a religious background and a religious experience. But without the life, there would have been that outward conformity, and we'll think about those things. And he teaches them now that through obedience, that is, that, that is something that characterizes the Christian life, a life of obedience, and not conforming to the former lusts, but trusting in the Savior. So in verse 14 we read, as obedient children, we have that obedience there, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. Peter does make a number of other distinctives, but we're not looking at the whole chapter. I'm just building up to some verses that I'd like to consider in particular, uh, particularly in verse 18, which we'll look at shortly. And so uh, as we look at these things, we want to see the lessons that are brought out to us. And he urges them to be holy as the Lord is holy. Verse 16, because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. And uh, he reminds them too, from verse 17, that they're just passing through. And their lessons here are to believers. But this evening I want to speak to those who have not yet come to faith. Those who have not yet trusted in Christ. But as Peter is going to give an analysis, a description, an explanation of what has happened to these uh, believers, then if you're outside the kingdom, this is a lesson. These are steps. Here are helps. As uh, these people had come to trust in Christ, Peter explains how they had come to trust in Christ. And so we trust that we would learn uh, how to trust in him ourselves. And so uh, he urges them in verse 17 to pass the time of their sojourning here in fear, in reverence, in trust. And he reminds them that they are sojourners, which is not a term we use in everyday conversation, but travelers, those who are passing through. And so already you can see, and the scripture always has this aspect, as we mentioned this morning, an eternal one, that uh, the believer has his eye not just on this life, but on the life to come. And the believer knows that the life to come is really the real life. He has eternal life. He has spiritual life now, but he doesn't have the full realization of it. And so that is the setting for the verses that are going to follow. He's given an overview of what's happened to them. And then he goes into detail and gives us the stages and grounds of their conversion. So my first real heading is in verse 18, and it would be redemption. Redemption. That very precious word. Peter speaks of it there in verse 18. For as much as ye know 
that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold. So uh, uh, there were times of ignorance also. We read that in verse 14. The former, when you were walking according to the former lusts, in your ignorance. So we were ignorant, and maybe you are ignorant or unaware of your lusts, that they control you, that they dictate everything in your life, those appetites and those desires and those needs which must be met and which you believe are all that life is about, to fulfill those lusts, to accomplish those designs and aims and purposes, but that they will actually pass away, is what the scripture says. But we're unaware that we're captive and that we're in debt, that we're slaves to sin. We don't know that. It seems strange to us, maybe odd religious talk, but you can test it for yourself. You can try and reform your life. You can try and break those habits, those things which you know are contrary to conscience and to that inner sense that God has given to each man or woman. You can attempt self-reformation, and many have. But be careful, because you might delude yourself that you're succeeding. You might be able to tick a few boxes and improve uh, matters in some areas of your life. But those deep-seated issues of pride and trust in self and belief in this world will persist. And you cannot root them out. We are slaves to them, slaves to Satan. Satan, by his subtlety, strews our way with temptations, informs this world, guides its thinkers, and we're unaware of it. He influences us all the time. So we're talking about salvation. We're talking about redemption. Redemption is a much richer term, and we'll look at that in a minute. But before we even do that, you might wonder, salvation? What are we being saved from? What are we being redeemed from? Well, there'll be no surprises here. We're being redeemed from or saved from condemnation. Scripture tells us, if you're a believer, that there is now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Scripture tells us also in John 3 that if you don't believe, you are condemned already. And that's quite a surprise to people sometimes. They think, well, no, I'm in a neutral state. I haven't actually decided one way or the other. I'm in, on probation. In my life, I might decide eventually to follow Christ, or I might not. But right now, I'm in no man's land. But here's the truth. You are condemned. You are already condemned. We're under con condemnation. And we need to be brought back. We need to be delivered. We need uh, to be released from that. So condemnation, that judicial sentence pending, it's only waiting for its uh, formal application. It's in the courts of heaven already. So that's a shock to people sometimes. We're being saved from judgment, which really I've referred to already, where the penalty will then be applied for the guilty sinner who is us. We're being saved from the punishment that is due. These are all legal processes. There's nothing novel in them. Humanity has observed them throughout its history. Where do they come from? Why do we bother? Because it's innate, it's within us. 
It's God-given. And the God who gave us those principles of justice and law will, of course, himself abide by them. He's not going to abandon them or forget them. He's bound to apply justice. So he speaks about redemption. And we're saved, actually, from so many other things. That's a sermon on its own, or many sermons. We're saved from a futile life, and we'll consider that a pointless life. So Peter here speaks about our redemption, for as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed, brought back. So that's right central to that point. So a price has to be paid. Redemption literally is to buy back, to recover. Somebody's under debt, under bond or bondage, and they need someone to pay their release. More than bail, because bail is only a temporary release. But redemption here is a full acquittal because the price has been paid. But uh, a payment is, uh, is required. So we're being uh, paid out of debt and guilt and sin. But here's the thing. We're very unaware by nature of how much guilt we have. Even as you hear me speak, you might uh, run through your mind and think, yes, I'm guilty of a few things, I've done a few things wrong. But in the sight of God, it is a massive debt and it has serious consequences. It's why the gospel is preached through the ages because the consequences are so serious and real that we're to be delivered from them. An illustration is of my, uh, my daughter, just two, about two weeks ago, had a great shock. She uh, works for a small company, very successful actually, doing very well, enlarging their business and extending their scope. But one Monday morning they all got a call that their CEO was in hospital. And it transpired that he was in hospital through a breakdown, through stress. Because the CEO had finally got around to looking at the accounts and looking at the books. And they had assumed that all was well, that they were buoyant, that they were making a profit, that the books balanced. But when he finally got around to looking at them, he was in such shock to discover the depths of debt that the company was in, that he had a nervous breakdown. He was hospitalized, and he probably won't return to the company. And uh, that really is just an indication of the kind of shock that would be ours on that day of judgment, when we actually see, for the first time, what we've been guilty of, how unreasonable it's been, how iniquitous it has been. We always minimize it. We don't have any real apprehension of the seriousness of sin. We don't have any realization of how uh, wicked it is, how guilty we are, how involved we are, and how holy God is. It's, we minimize, we reduce God to someone who's just a little bit higher than us, and we reduce our sin to a few misdemeanors. But the truth is that we're wrong on both counts. God's holiness is as high as the heavens, and our sin has eternal consequences. It must do. It's not just this preacher being negative and haranguing. I hope it doesn't come across at all like that. But it's simply the case. Else why would the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, come? 
and suffer on Calvary's cross. Why would he, if it was just a matter of a small debt that could be written off in any other way? Why does the scripture warn us, and the Saviour warns more of condemnation than he mentions even heaven? Why does he warn that people will be lost eternally, if it isn't that serious? And so that illustration I gave you actually is not sufficient. Happily, if you're wondering, the company is going to survive. My daughter's job is secure. But the point, I hope, is made. So our debt is beyond human help. So if you're going down the route of self-reformation, it's absolutely futile and vain. So redemption is what's been talked about here. Being brought back, and Peter really uh, goes on to emphasize this, the scope and the value of these things. For as much as ye know, so he's reminding them of things that they've been taught, that you are not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold. This passage is often used at communion service when we reflect upon the death of our Saviour to help us gain some sense of the weight, of the pain, of the woe that our Saviour bore for us, the great, great cost. So my next heading is, is silver and gold. The preciousness of redemption and its absolute security. Once you're redeemed, once you're saved and safe, you are eternally safe. And that's the wonder of it. Almost every other religious system, you can't be absolutely sure. You might not have done enough. Certainly in Islam, you hope that you've done more good than evil. That takes no account of the fact that God then must accept you with a part evil heart and a part good heart, as if somehow your good works will outweigh that wicked heart. There's no mention of a new heart, no mention of a changed character, a new birth, and all the other religions also uh, suffer from the same deficit. The value of our efforts cannot begin to pay the price. So he speaks about... Uh, what we're redeemed by. We were not redeemed with corruptible things. Because if, they, if we were, then our redemption would be subject to uh, decay. And although it might last a thousand years, one day it won't be uh, there anymore because the price will have run out. The rent will no longer be paid. The price is not sufficient. So Peter says we're not redeemed with such things as these. And he selects silver and gold to represent probably the most valuable, valuable materials that we could think of. Now, we could uh, debate that. It may well be that there are other elements that are actually more valuable in our day. But it makes the point that these were the uh, primary things that people considered. And uh, even they will fail. We know that silver tarnishes but we might imagine that gold doesn't. The gold endures. The gold has an almost eternal property. But it doesn't. It's a physical material. It will run down. It will tarnish. It will decay. Yes, gold might, might outlast us by many, many generations. But the Lord is looking at eternal security. So Peter selects these most precious materials to make the point that that wasn't enough. All the silver and gold is not sufficient for us. Uh, 
And this is uh, sadly the security of many. Many people can sleep at night because they have a good bank balance. Many people are secure because they have a good job, because they have wealth. Many people feel confident because they have access to so many resources and so much power. But really, anyone can observe that no matter how much wealth you have, that's going to decay. And you can't take it with you. And it won't bring you any peace or any happiness. And it most certainly can't pay for one sin. All the silver, all the gold, all the wealth cannot right the wrong, the moral wrong, the sin that's been perpetrated, the offence against God. God is not bought off with the very elements that he made. No. So Peter uses that to emphasise and to make the point. So what are we redeemed by? And what have we been redeemed from? Well, I've mentioned that also. I've mentioned salvation. But we're redeemed, Peter now a specific. Uh, I've mentioned uh, that we're saved from judgment, condemnation, punishment. But Peter now adds these two. You are not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation. So redeemed from what? What is salvation? What are you redeemed from? What are you bought back from? So by default, we are in debt to sin. And that's how we're born and that's how we live until we're rescued. And Peter tells us that redemption is from your vain conversation. Vain. That term literally means futile. Your futile way. It's futile. It's pointless. And uh, it's aimless. Translation is aimless conduct. Now I realize that that's offensive. If someone tells you, as I am telling you, as the scripture tells us, your life ultimately is futile, vain, pointless. That's very offensive. Isn't it? All that you've invested all that you've hoped for, all that you believe. And someone tells you that it's pointless and empty. That's going to really agitate. That's going to stir up pride. It cannot be so. That's most unreasonable. Surely God will take account of my good points, of my virtues. Yes, of course, we all have failings. But we do so many good things. Shouldn't God be pleased by those? No, that's what he expects. That's reasonable behavior. We only think they're good because we contrast them with the evil, which shouldn't be there anyway, with the sin. We were created to be righteous. And the aim is, and the standard is, be ye holy for I am holy. That's the command of God. And that's not related to salvation. Nowhere does the Bible say, be ye holy as I am holy, and when you achieve that perfect standard of holiness, you will be saved. No. It's a reminder of God's perfect holiness, which is, as I think we'll all agree, unattainable by any of us. And so we need to be redeemed from a vain life, from a, a pointless life. It's not to say everything you do is worthless. 
it does have worth in its context. We should do good. We should show love and respect and kindness. It's not without value, but it has no currency. It has no buying power. It won't impress God. So we're not uh, in any means discouraging virtuous behavior. But as Peter really is explaining here, that uh, we were redeemed not with those things, not with the efforts of men, not with the values of this life. And uh, we need to be aware of what it is that we are being redeemed from. We have to look at our lives as a whole. As I often mention, what does it amount to? What did it achieve? Well, you might say it achieved very much. If you're an engineer or a social reformer or a medical person, or in fact in any number of fields, a great deal was achieved. And that may well be so. But what about the soul? Did it prepare your soul for eternal life? Or was it just temporary? And that's really always the question that we have to ask, that the scripture asks of us. Sadly, as we go on, as we progress, our spiritual debt actually mounts. It increases. Our culpability uh, is enlarged. And the problem is with the world that there's no fear of God before their eyes. And that's contrary to what the scripture calls us to be. Verse 17 again, If you call on the Father without respect of persons, judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. That means in reverence, in respect to God's ordinances, in understanding that he is the eternal judge over all, that he is a kind, heavenly, loving Father. But without that fear, with self-confidence and sensual appetites, then you're heading into deep trouble and your debt remains unpaid. So is that you? And uh, where do you get this vain outlook from? Where did I get it from? Let me say that. All of us. We were in that position. We were just the same. No different. Christians are described as saved sinners. We're still sinners. We never earned anything on our own merit. It was a gift to each and every one of us. But we needed to be awakened from our sleep. But where did they receive it from? Let me read the verse to you again. Verse 18. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation, behavior, life. Where did you get that from? Received by tradition from your fathers. Where did we learn such behaviors? Where did we pick up our standards? Where were we taught what, what was good, what was bad, what we should do in life? It's from this by tradition, from our fathers, from our forebears. It's inevitable, isn't it? I'm really stating the obvious, actually. We're born into a world, we're surrounded by a world, which has its set of values, which are godless. Yes, some good things, as I've mentioned, some noble things. Not all is terrible and bleak, that is true. But by and large, the ethos, the ideology, the world view is that there's no God, or if there is, he's not too bothered, and actually he'll think that you're quite a good person. 
So we receive that tradition. We receive it. We think, well, that's, that sounds fine. And the tradition is, especially in these days, when most people in my school, college, workplace, family, don't believe in God. And uh, science has disproved that there's God. Evolution has disproved that there's God. These are our traditions. And we receive them. And accept them. And build our lives on them. And they're, they're not neutral. They will determine our outlook. How we behave. Our choices in life. Our morality. Or immorality. Or really in our day and age, amorality. It's not even a question of whether things are moral or not anymore. If you want them, if that's who you believe you are, have it, take it, be it. So that is the tradition of our fathers. It may be literally our fathers, our parents, but it means our forebears, those around us. And we simply take in the world without question. Now most young people, or probably almost anyone, believes that they are an individual thinker. Well, not me. I'm not swept along by these things. I have my own views. And uh, I, I'm not influenced by people. Well, to some extent, uh, there might be some truth in that. But by and large, we are. When you analyse it, we accept the prevailing view of the world. And those that don't are Christians. Those that stand against the tide who say something completely different and opposite are people that have been given light from above and truth. So our originality is a myth and uh, a delusion and uh, uh, it's not true. So we need to trust in him, received by tradition from our fathers, from the thinkers. I've been reading some... Uh, books recently and it's incredible how they're great thinkers of the past. People obviously like Freud, Darwin but many others too. We don't know it but they were representative thinkers of an alternative worldview of self that God is really just everything. A pantheistic view and all kinds of other things and they've influenced our society and our lives. And it's obscured from us our fallen nature. And so our lusts and our appetites are turned into virtues and the expression of self. That's the age we live in now. That which is actually immoral in God's sight is approved of and encouraged to flourish. And anything that opposes it is, must be opposed and that's the age we live in. Where does it come from? Received by tradition from your fathers. Now it's true that Peter might have more in mind religious traditions. He is speaking to the Jews, converted Jews, and they were, of course, greatly influenced by their religious system. But there was great error there also. Not that they didn't have the scriptures, but they misread them, misinterpreted them, didn't see Christ in them and thought that outward conformity to the law, to the dietary laws, to the observance of days, to tithing, to observing outward forms, was sufficient. But that was vain, received by tradition from your fathers. I've mentioned it already, so we would only touch it on it again. That's false religion. 
Are you depending on external obedience, outward respectability? Peter tells us here that those are vain traditions and they obscure from us our real need. Let's come then to the heart of the matter. Where are we headed? What is Peter building up to? He's told us what we were not redeemed by. He's told us what true religion is not. But now he tells us what it is. Verse 19. But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. How precious! All the gold in the world, all the silver, all the money in the Bank of England, all the gold in Fort Knox could not pay off one debt. It has no value when it comes to the eternal soul. But the precious blood of Christ achieves that. Not that the blood itself is mystical, but it represents his death, his suffering, his atonement. And that picture throughout the Bible from beginning to end was given us prophetically. That's why we had the whole tradition of sacrifice. Because it was pointing to the Saviour. One must pay. There must be punishment. And uh, the only way that we could escape that punishment is if another received it for us. And uh, there it is. As the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb, referring to that sacrificial lamb, without blemish and without spot. You see, that's so different to us, isn't it? We're full of blemishes and spots and disfigurements and uglinesses and inadequacies, spiritually disabled and ill. How can we present ourselves to God as he looks and gazes into our soul and sees all the inconsistency and hostility and sin and captivity? How can he overlook it? By his very nature, he's holy. But he can deal with us. He can give us new life. Because he sees in Christ the redeemed. He's paid their debt. He's paid your debt. How precious. I mentioned that debt earlier of that man who went to hospital. But that barely addresses the matter at all. This is far more serious but uh, the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. And he was slain for us and he was uh, paid the price for us and he felt every pang for us. You see, he's reminding believing people, he's reminding people who have gone through that experience. Interesting that he needs to remind them. We need to be reminded, even as Christians, of the value of our redemption. And even though we read these things and might be stirred and moved, we know that there's so much more. Peter mentions again and again salvation and the debt paid for us and the great assurance that we have. Verse 21, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead. That's the seal and certainty that our debt was paid. It's the assurance that once for all, if you've trusted in him, 
But you've been redeemed, you've been brought back, you've been rescued, you've been recovered. And you're on the pathway to glory. There's absolute certainty. Uh, Peter is emphasizing, emphasizing the value of it. This is the new birth, being born again. Peter mentions it a number of times even in this, in this chapter, but in verse 23, being born again. And he reiterates, not of corruptible seed, this time the picture is slightly different, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. So he assures us of eternal security. But these things are being presented to us. The thing is, what is going to be your reaction? Peter reminds us too that your life is vain, verse 24, for all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. That's your life. That's my life. In a few words, in a sentence, in a text in the Bible, without Christ and redemption, that's your life, that's my life. That's how God sees it. But the Lord doesn't want us to just be wither away, perish. But he wants us to be redeemed. So the final verse then. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word of God which by the gospel is preached unto you. Question is, what will you do with it? It's preached to you. It's expanded. It's, ex it's shown so inadequately by human agency, so imperfectly, but the truths are so grand, do they not strike you? Do they not expose your need? Do they not at the same time present the remedy and the love and the certainty and the security? That's the saviour that we present to you. What will you do with him? Will you come to him? Will you trust in him? Will you repent of your sins? And if you do, then your lives are no longer vain, futile. You have eternal glory. And verse 4, I'll just finish with this. I know our time has gone on. What a beautiful verse this is. How precious. This is what we're saved from. To an inheritance, incorruptible, cannot be defiled, undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, by God, for you, for me, personally. There cannot be more assurance that if you come to Christ, you are eternally safe. Well, let's pray.